The scripture reading today is from the book of Jonah, chapters 3 and 4. You can find it printed on page 9 of your worship folder. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city, uh, into the city, going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew what you are, a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are now more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Lord, here we are to hear from you. We pray you would speak to us through your word this morning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, I have to say before we start that I agreed to preach in January, even though I live in a house with three germ vestibules <laughs> under the age of 11. So uh, I thankfully have enough of a voice to talk this morning. But according to my sixth grade son, my voice is cringy. So I'm very sorry about that one. Um, I, so I am from the panhandle of Texas, the plains, the high plains. Um, and my, my ancestors have been there for a while now, you know, maybe like 175 years or something. And they came to the plains of Texas 
from the south where they were sharecroppers. And the plains became opened up because, let's be honest, the land was stolen from the Comanche, offered to white people. So along came my family. Um, and they could only afford land like the Panhandle of Texas. No trees, dirt that's hard to grow stuff in. But they got some land. And I come from hardworking people. So three out of four of my grandparents were from cotton farming families in the Depression. And I was the youngest of all the grandkids. Um, I was the second to get into graduate school and the first grandchild to ever consider leaving Texas. Um, so I had this Mima, who I like to call an undercover feminist. She would never have agreed to that term, but she was a, a glass ceiling buster kind of lady. Uh, she took her country high school diploma and had a data entry job at a bank that she started in the 50s. And by the time she retired in early 90s, she was the vice president of that bank. So she was a penny saver, and that turned into a stock saver. And then she used those stocks to send her grandkids to college. So when I got into graduate school in the godless Northeast, there was kind of like no choice to her, for her. I had to go. I had a good scholarship. But she set me down. And she said to me, now you just go, Micah, and you come right back. <laughs> and don't you go and marry a Yankee. <laughs> so if that line of thinking is new to you, let me explain. My family prided ourselves in our simplicity. We were self-made, family-centered, hardworking, teetotaling. If you don't know what that word is, you can go Google it later. Uh, we appreciated the prairie lands, even if nobody else did. And, uh, and we were not fancy. Now, fancy consists of eating food, that takes a long time to prepare. Uh, fancy means shopping in stores that are not called Mervyn's. <laughs> and uh, drinking beverages that aren't unsweetened iced tea. So uh, that's what a Yankee was to my Mima. And uh, it was a fancy person who didn't understand our ways. So I didn't mean to, but I met one. <laughs> And uh, he was tall, and he was handsome, and he was really sweet and smart. And he made meals, and he like dirtied all the pans in the whole kitchen, and he put a lot of garlic in it. <laughs> and then he drank wine out of like particular kinds of glasses. And he didn't know what Mervyn's was. <laughs> and he lived in this godless northeastern city. So uh, fancy is a bias, but it's real, and it's continued to play out in small and big ways in the family that the Yankee and I have made together. Um, but the reason the bias doesn't hold true is because Chris is so much more than fancy, even if he is fancy. 
Um, and the Northeast that I moved to was so much more than godless. And that's what bias does. It's when we simplify people and places into our one-line assumptions about their worth. So we're here today to talk about bias and about Jonah, the crankiest of all the prophets. <laughs> the least likely to win prophet of the year. Jonah, was, who is best known for getting himself swallowed by a big fish, which the Bible doesn't say whale, everybody. Uh, and, and this is really like one of the most exciting Bible stories. So exciting that it's been taught in, on children's ministry felt boards for as long as Sunday school has existed in the world. And um, so why are we talking about Jonah here today in our sermon? Because um, believe it or not, Jonah is not really a story about a prophet shirking his duty, running from God, and eventually getting his comeuppance. It's actually a story about God's love for a city that didn't love God back. It's a story about Jonah living life full of cultural bias and hatred toward a country that had absolutely tormented his own. And then being called by God to go there and give them a second chance. And it's a story about how God sees our enemies and how God calls us to unravel our own prejudice, our own bias and hatred, and learn how to see the world the way God sees it. And it's about Nineveh, which in some ways is like San Francisco, a city that is both beautiful and broken, a place that is both and, because nothing is utterly evil, and neither was Nineveh. But to Jonah, whose people had been tortured by the Assyrians, the city was only evil. To Jonah, it was incapable of deserving love. And in some ways, that's what the story of Jonah is about. It's about God calling Jonah to see the city as God sees it, to hold infinite compassion for the complexities of human communities. So let's talk a little about the book of Jonah. Jonah is often considered a parable. If you look at it side by side with other Old Testament prophets, it reads differently. Jonah is a book that contains no dates, no characters mentioned by name except for Jonah. Um, and there's not even a name for the king of Nineveh. So this is different than other Old Testament prophetic books, which list dates and times and places and who's in leadership. So this leads a lot of scholars to read Jonah as a parable as opposed to his, a historical account. But what we, do know about, what we do know is that Jonah is identified as a prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel around the time between 786 and 746 BCE. And that Nineveh was an actual city. Its ruins are still there. It's across the Tigris River from Mosul, Iraq. Um, and it was an important Assyrian city. It would become the capital in 704 BCE. And it's also important to understand that Assyria was known for its brutal treatment 
of those they conquered. And they had co conquered Jonah's people. So what we know is that the book of Jonah is a story about God's concern, God's love for a city that had been written off as irredeemable. And this is a story within the larger story of Israel. The people God had chosen as God's own, and they've been beaten up by the bully on the block. And God is supposed to be on Israel's side. So when God comes to Jonah with a request to make sure the bully knows that he can still have another chance, Jonah is not in. So let's look at this passage. Actually, this whole book, which is only four little short chapters. Um, this is our second week in our series on friendship with the city. And we're looking at what God has to say to us through this story of one angry prophet's refusal to offer mercy towards his enemies and God's insistence, much to Jonah's chagrin, that Nineveh was worthy of life and a second chance. So first of all, I think the book of Jonah teaches us that the city, and therefore we, the humans inside that city, are invited into God's upward movement. We see in the very first verse of chapter 1, God's invitation to Jonah, and it is arise and go. In the message, which I love to, to use when I'm studying scripture, uh, it says, on your feet, Jonah, Nineveh is in a bad way, and I can't ignore it any longer. God says, arise and go. But Jonah goes down. He doesn't go up. He goes down and down and down. He goes down to Joppa, the seaside town. He goes down into the ship in Joppa. He goes down into the hold of the ship as it sails out into the water. He goes down to sleep. And eventually, when in, in, in chapter one, when the ship, as most of you probably know of this story, is in big trouble and the waves are crashing and the sailors are trying to decide why are we about to die? Surely somebody's done something wrong. Uh, Jonah is woken up and he eventually has to confess the fact that, yeah, it was me. God told me to arise and go and I went down. So... Jonah has to go down further. He goes down all the way to the bottom of the ocean when they throw him overboard. And ancient people would have thought about this as Jonah going down out of creation. If you think about the way that ancient people saw the world, there was kind of you know this very one-dimensional, there's the earth, and there's the ocean, and the earth ends. And here's the underworld, right? Here's Hades. And so down at the bottom of the ocean are the gates to the underworld. And they would have seen Jonah going down out of creation, and the sea gates would close behind him, and he would have entered the utter descent of disobedience. Instead of arising and going, he's gone as far as you can go. But in this story... Instead of the gates closing over Jonah, God breaks in. 
God rescues, and God rescues with a big fish. A big fish. And it's the only way Jonah can be brought from death and the underworld back into the land of the living because only the fish can swim from there all the way back to land. So the fish gets him, swims to the edge of life, it drags his body back up to the world, and it vomits him up, which is just lovely. (laughs) So God's act of sending this big fish isn't extra torture. I think that's how how I always read it growing up. Like, oh, Jonah did some really bad stuff. And then he went in the sea, and then he got swallowed by the fish. All lots of torture. But this is actually his rescue. The fish has rescued him from the bottom of the sea and brought him back up to life. And that's what we see in his prayer in chapter 2. And I've read scholars who say that the prayer Jonah prays is actually this very smart composite, this collection of pieces of the Psalms. And so the people of Israel, when they read this story, they would have recognized pieces of their songbook in Jonah's song that he prays. So Jonah's basically praying, you threw me into the ocean's depths, into a watery grave. I said, I've been thrown away, thrown out of your sight. My head was all tangled in seaweed at the bottom of the sea where the mountains take root. I went as far down as a body can go, and the gates, the Hades gates, were slamming shut behind me forever. Yet you pulled me up from that grave alive. Oh God, my God. So Jonah is given this second chance. And that chance is an invitation, the same invitation he's given at the very beginning of the story. Arise and go. Theologian Wilda Gaffney says, Jonah's cruise was a nightmare. He finds himself cast overboard, cast away, and wakes up smelling like fish-flavored vomit. Then God tells Jonah to get up again and get himself to Nineveh. In calling Jonah the second time, God gives Jonah a second chance, a chance for him to grow beyond his biases. Jonah doesn't have to stay the way he is, small, mean, and bitter. He can become more like God by caring for those whom God cares, by loving those whom God loves. So what is the second chance that he's given? It's what our, our pastor, theologian, and residence, Peter Choi, says, the spiritual movement of the book of Jonah is a movement towards a stranger for the sake of God's redeeming, reconciling love. And we are invited, just like Jonah, to join God in that upward movement. Arise and go toward that redeeming, reconciling love. We don't have to go down and down and down. But if we choose the downward momentum, God is always the God who sends the great big rescuing fish. Thanks be to God. We also learn that God's compassion for the city is a mystery. Jonah is a parable about the mystery of God's compassion. So what we know about Nineveh is that it is utter evil. There is torturing, beheading. This is the capital of Syria during the time of Iron Age terrorism. 
raping, enslaving people. The Assyrians were infamous for peeling the skin of people off their bodies while they were still alive. The Assyrians were responsible for destroying the northern kingdom of Israel, for subjecting, taxing, and oppressing the southern kingdom, destroying the Judite city of Lachish. And if that weren't enough, the Assyrian kings would boast about and display images of their violent conquests of foreign lands. In my research for this sermon, I found a photo of a figurine that was once displayed in the royal palace of Nineveh, and it depicts Assyrian soldiers flaying naked Judite men. The early audience of this book of Jonah would have known all of this. And they would have known that the Assyrians were responsible for breaking the nation of Israel, destroying the northern monarchy, sending the people of Israel into exile, so that the 12 tribes had basically been reduced to just one with some stragglers and refugees. And they were all trying to figure out how to be a people without their land and their resources. So Jonah has no love for these people. And he can't imagine that the God who loves the Israelites could possibly have love for Nineveh. And as we know, people have a tendency to paint their biases onto their God. So Jonah often gets seen as the bad guy in the story. But I think this is akin to asking a Holocaust survivor to go back to his torturers and, and Auschwitz and say, hey, listen, guys, I want to give you another chance to do the right thing. This is not fair of God to ask of Jonah. And what we learn is that God's compassion is not about fairness. And that's why it's a mystery to us. If God loves and gives Nineveh a second chance, if God rescues Jonah from the deep in order to get him in front of crowds of Nineveh to preach, if God changes God's mind when the people repent, then there is no city, there is no collection of humans who are too far gone for the compassion of God. And of course the compassion of God shouldn't meet our standards of fairness. Because none of us deserve it, and that's the beautiful richness of the kingdom of God. None of it is earned. All of it is grace. Or as Wilda Gaffney says, Jonah gives God a piece of his bigoted little mind, and God listens because God even cares for the bigots among us. There is no limit to God's love. So the people of Nineveh reach out to God just as they are. And that's enough. And third, we learn that God's love for the city is related to God's love for creation. That mercy is actually threaded in to the natural order of things. The story of Jonah is bookended with these powerful images of creation. We have Jonah being overcome by the sea, getting rescued by the giant fish. And then after his success as a prophet, he, he, and his sulking when his enemies repent and get away with their evil ways, we find that the story ends with a parable within a parable about a gourd or a bush that grows and dies in the course of a day. 
these two images of creation that God is in charge of. So we find ourselves in chapter 4, and in the message it says, Jonah is, says that Jonah is furious, that he's lost his temper, and he's yelled at God. He says, God, I knew it. When I was back home, I knew this was going to happen, and that's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew you were sheer grace and mercy, not easily angered, rich in love, and ready at the drop of a hat to turn your plans of punishment into a program of forgiveness. So he leaves. And Jonah goes out of the city to the east, and he sits down to sulk, and he makes himself this little makeshift shelter of branches, and he sits there to see if something's going to happen to the city, just hoping for some kind of like drop of explosion, fireballs. But verse 6 says that God arranges for a broadleaf tree to spring up, this gourd that grows over Jonah to cool him off and get him out of his angry sulk. And Jonah is pleased, and he enjoys, enjoys the shade. Um, sweet Jonah. He's, he just goes from one feeling to the next. <laughs> and then in verses 7 and 8, God comes with a worm, and the worm eats the whole thing up. So then Jonah's stuck sweating and getting the sunburn, and watching the city that God is not destroying and wishing he could just die. So we go from the wildness of the sea and the salvation of the fish to the growth and the comfort and then the destruction of this gourd. And God starts to tell Jonah that the city is like a gourd that God plants and tends and that God has the power to give life and death. And the gourd helps us see this meaning of God's justice and mercy and how it's founded in God's identity as creator. Because for Jonah, as someone who's grown up with the knowledge that, that his people are the special ones, his people are the ones that God has chosen, he has to make peace with the fact, the reality that the mercy and compassion of God extends far beyond the covenant that God has made with the people of Israel. That God is not just the God of Israel, but also Lord of the earth and the sea. And God's mercy and justice are rooted not only in God's commitment to the covenant made with Israel, but to the creator's commitment to creation. And this is the God who will eventually bring rescue to the entire world through Israel, through the person of Jesus. This is the God who allows everyone to get a second chance. Everyone gets their big fish. And the story of Israel is the story of God's movement of mercy into the whole world. And there is no place too evil for grace to move into. The Lord of creation is the Lord of the sea, the Lord of the fish, the gourd and the worm, the city and the land, the Jews and the Gentiles. And so we get to that last line from God, and it's a question. And it just ends there and hangs there with that question. So, God says, why can't I likewise change what I feel about Nineveh from anger to pleasure? This big city of more than 120,000 childlike people who don't yet know right from wrong, to say nothing of the innocent animals. And he just ends it there. We end with God's mention of animals 
and God's mention of childlike people who don't know right from wrong. And we end with a prophet who has been through a whole lot and still doesn't quite get it. And even in this ending, we see compassion. Has Nineveh totally changed now? Probably not. Does Jonah totally get it now? Probably not. Nineveh may not completely turn from its evil ways and become the center of goodness and Yahweh worship in the world. But we leave the story with a broader view of how God sees Nineveh. And once again, the invitation that God has for Jonah. Jonah, I am the God of the ocean and the fish. I am the God of the Jews and the Gentiles, of good and evil, the childlike humans and the innocent animals, and all of it matters. And I like to think that this story ends in the same way it begins, with God giving Jonah a chance to arise and go. But this time calling us to see the world and all its inhabitants, the creatures and the cities full of dangerous and childlike humans who don't understand right from wrong, just as God sees Nineveh, beautiful and broken and worthy of grace upon grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in this story that can seem so wild, we find in you the same character that we see throughout Scripture. That you are the God who loves us, who sees us as the children we are, who sees that we need help, who sees that we need grace and rescue. Thank you, God, for seeing our cities that way, for seeing our city, San Francisco, that way. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your invitation to us to arise and go. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.